A special thanks to Audible.com for supporting our show. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to Audible.com slash 1001 today. That's Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com. On the morning of August 23, 1863, an armed force of as many as 400 men descended upon the town of Lawrence in the state of Kansas and proceeded to systematically destroy it. The riders arrived on Mount Oread, then descended on Lawrence in a fury. For over four hours, the raiders pillaged and set fire to the town and killed most of its male population. William C. Quantrill's men burned to the ground a quarter of the buildings in Lawrence, including all but two businesses. They looted most of the banks and stores and killed between 185 and 200 men and boys. According to an 1897 account, among the dead were 18 of 23 unmustered Army recruits. By 9 a.m., the raiders were on their way out of town, evading the few units that came in pursuit and splitting up so as to avoid Union pursuit of a unified column. Only seven years earlier, on May 21, 1856, the town of Lawrence had been sacked and devastated by pro-slavery forces. The war in Kansas and Missouri had been going on long before the start of the Civil War. Our story begins right after this message from Audible.com. I spend a lot of time in the car, and Audible.com is the perfect companion. No surprise to you, I like history. Right now, I'm listening to Audible.com's Unbroken, the World War II story of Louis Zamperini. It's extremely well narrated, and the story gets you right from the start. The spoken version is very entertaining. I already know you enjoy history well told, and you'll love this book. In our 1001 Heroes episode titled Pappy Boynton and His Black Sheep Squadron, Boynton is shot down and captured by the Japanese. He meets Zamperini in a prison camp. Zamperini survived 27 days on a life raft before the Japs picked him up to tell his story, as did Boynton. These were hard men who faced very hard circumstances and stood up to the test. Audible.com has over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from. I'll share a few of my favorites at the end of our show today, plus give you some tips on how to get the most out of your choices. For our 1001 Heroes fans, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook of your choice to give you a chance to try out their service. You can use your PC or Mac to sign up. Use the URL www.audible.com slash 1001. That's audible.com slash 1001. I have placed this in the show notes if you need a reminder. One more neat thing about Audible.com, unlike a streaming or rental service, you own it. And if you choose a book and don't like it, you can exchange it for another title anytime. I get so much more out of audiobooks that I don't get from movies or printed books. And now I can't wait to travel a few states away to see relatives. And now, our story. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This episode from our history series is titled Quantrill's Raiders, and it tells the story of a notorious and feared gang of outlaws and killers in south-central United States who used the boiling conflict over slavery issues in Kansas and Missouri in the 1850s as a platform to wage their own campaigns of destruction and death. These gangs operated equally on both sides of the slavery issue. 
The unrest in Kansas and Missouri was rooted in an issue that had been a smoldering source of contention since the establishment of the Union, slavery. For years, Congress had been gingerly constructing compromises in an effort to calm regional tensions by maintaining the balance of the number of slave and free states admitted to the Union as the country expanded westward. Congress's latest attempt was the Compromise of 1850. Among other stipulations, this act specified that California would be admitted as a free state and established the Fugitive Slave Act. What was the Fugitive Slave Act? It was passed by the United States Congress on September 18, 1850, as part of the Compromise of 1850 between Southern slaveholding interests and Northern interests. This was one of the most controversial elements of the 1850 Compromise and heightened Northern fears of a slave power conspiracy. It required that all escaped slaves were, upon capture, to be returned to their masters and that officials and citizens of free states had to cooperate in this law. Abolitionists nicknamed it the Bloodhound Law for the dogs that were used to track down the runaway slaves. Missouri had already been deemed a slave state. Kansas was not. This provided a geographical divide for what was already a rift between pro- and anti-slavery sympathizers. The law also made possible a reward for capturing and returning runaway slaves, a reward large enough to attract full-time bounty hunters. Lines were being drawn between those who were pro-slavery and those who opposed it. Regions, states, towns, neighbors, and families became divided. The antipathy between pro- and anti-slavery advocates was heightened by plans to build a railroad that would stretch westward from the Mississippi River to California. Before this could be accomplished, the territory through which the road was planned would have to be organized, particularly the Nebraska Territory that included Kansas. Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois orchestrated the passage in 1854 of the Nebraska-Kansas Act that created the territories of Nebraska and Kansas and further stipulated that the new state's status as free or slave would be determined by the popular vote of its residents. Although Senator Douglas's intention was to ameliorate pro- and anti-slavery differences, the seeds of national conflict were sown, and Bleeding Kansas was born. Bleeding Kansas was the term coined by Horace Greeley, publisher of the New York Tribune, to describe the violence that racked the territory and turned it into a battleground for pro- and anti-slavery adherents in the mid-1850s. Missouri, Kansas's neighbor, was a slave state, and many pro-slavers, labeled as border ruffians, crossed from Missouri into Kansas to assure the territory would enter the Union as a slave state. The northern states also sent contingents of anti-slavery supporters into the region, while abolitionists, such as the Reverend Henry Beecher Stowe, supplied them with arms. Not all of the anti-slavery migrants to Kansas were abolitionists, however. The majority were free soilers who opposed slavery not on moral grounds, but because the plantation system that slavery supported threatened their ability to establish their own small farms. The town of Lawrence, Kansas, was established in the fall of 1854 by anti-slavery immigrants from New England. Close to the Missouri border, it became a haven for anti-slavery advocates, and by the spring of 1856 boasted a population of about 1,500. It also became a prime target of the pro-slavery elements, which had, by May of 1856, gained control of the Kansas government and pursued a campaign of intimidation and arrest of anti-slavery advocates. 
On May 21st, a group of border ruffians, augmented by new arrivals from the south, gathered at Lawrence's outskirts and looked for an excuse to attack the settlement. The first battle of America's Civil War was about to begin. It would be the first of two attacks on this Kansas-Missouri border town within a seven-year time span. Both attacks would devastate Lawrence. Lawrence was considered by many to be the center of Kansas's anti-slavery movement. It was named for Amos Lawrence, a New England financier who provided aid to anti-slavery farmers and settlers. This group went beyond simple monetary aid. New England abolitionists shipped boxes of Sharps rifles named Beecher's Bibles to anti-slavery forces. The name for the rifles came from a comment by Henry Ward Beecher, the anti-slavery preacher who had remarked that a rifle might be a more powerful moral agent on the Kansas Plains than a Bible. The lines were now drawn. Each side had passion, and each side had guns. The administration of President Franklin Pierce refused to step in to resolve the election dispute resulting from the border ruffians. In the spring of 1856, Judge Samuel Lecompte demanded that members of the anti-slavery government in Kansas, called the Free Soil Government, be indicted for treason. Many leaders in this government lived in Lawrence. On May 21, 1856, the pro-slavery forces sprung into action. A posse of over 800 men from Kansas and Missouri rode to Lawrence to arrest members of the free state government. The citizens of Lawrence decided against resistance. However, the mob wasn't satisfied. They proceeded to destroy two newspaper offices as they threw the printing presses from the Free Soil newspaper into the nearby river. They burned and looted homes and shops. As a final message to abolitionists, they aimed their cannons at the Free State Hotel and smashed it into oblivion. Here's an eyewitness account of the 1854 sack of Lawrence, Kansas. Thomas H. Gladstone was an Englishman and a traveler who arrived in Kansas at the time of the sack of Lawrence. He wrote an unbiased description of the attack that was originally published in the London Times. We join his account as a small pro-slavery delegation led by Deputy Marshal Fane enters Lawrence with the goal of instigating a conflict by arresting some of the town citizens. During the forenoon, Fane, the deputy marshal, entered Lawrence with some assistance to make arrests of its citizens. He failed, however, in provoking the resistance desired, on which to found a pretext for attacking the city, for the citizens permitted the arrests to be made and responded to his demand for a posse to aid him. The United States Marshal had now, he stated, no more need of the troops, but as Sheriff Jones had some processes to serve in Lawrence, he would hand them over to him as a posse comitatus. Accordingly, in the afternoon, Jones rode into Lawrence at the head of 20 or more men, mounted and armed, and placed himself in front of the Free State Hotel, demanding of General Pomeroy the surrender of all arms. He gave him five minutes for his decision, failing which the posse would be ordered to bombard the town. General Pomeroy gave up their brass howitzer and some small pieces, the only arms that were not private property. Jones then demanded the removal of the furniture from the hotel, stating that the district court for Douglas County had adjudged the hotel and the two free state newspaper offices to be nuisances, and as nuisances to be removed, and that he was there as sheriff to execute these indictments and summarily remove the obnoxious buildings. In the meantime... The force of 800 men had left the hill above and were at the entrance of the town under Titus and Buford, Atchison and Stringfellow. The newspaper offices were the first objects of attack. First that of the Free State, 
than that of the Herald of Freedom, underwent a thorough demolition. The presses were in each case broken to pieces, and the offending type carried away to the river. The papers and books were treated in like manner, until the soldiers became weary of carrying them to the Caw River, when they thrust them in piles into the street, and burnt, tore, or otherwise destroyed them. From the printing offices they went to the hotel. As orders were given to remove the furniture, the wild mob threw the articles out of the windows, but shortly found more congenial employment in emptying the cellars. By this time four cannon had been brought opposite the hotel, and, under Atchison's command, they commenced to batter down the building. In this, however, they failed. The general's, Now, boys, let her rip, was answered by some of the shot missing the mark although the breadth of Massachusetts Street alone intervened, and the remainder of some scores of rounds leaving the walls of the hotel unharmed. They then placed kegs of gunpowder in the lower parts of the building and attempted to blow it up. The only result was the shattering of some of the windows and other limited damage. At length, to complete the work which their own clumsiness or inebriety had rendered difficult hitherto, orders were given to fire the building in a number of places, and, as a consequence, it was soon encircled in a mass of flames. Before evening, all that remained of the Eldridge house was a portion of one wall standing erect, and for the rest, a shapeless heap of ruins. The firing of the cannon had been the signal for most of the women and children in Lawrence to leave the city. This they did, not knowing whither to turn their steps. The male portion of its citizens watched, without offering resistance, the destruction of the buildings named, and next had to see their own houses made the objects of unscrupulous plunder. The sack of Lawrence occupied the remainder of the afternoon. Sheriff Jones, after gazing on the flames rising from the hotel and saying that it was the happiest day of his life, dismissed his posse, and they immediately commenced their lawless pillage. In this, officers and men all participated, and they did not terminate until they had rifled all the principal houses of whatever articles of value they could lay their hands upon, and had destroyed that which they could not carry away. Finally, Governor Robinson's house on Mount Oriad was set fire to, after it had been searched for papers and valuables, and its burning walls lit up the evening sky as the army of desperados, now wild with plunder and excesses, and maddened with drink, retired from the pillaged city. The value of the property stolen and destroyed during the day in Lawrence is estimated to have amounted to nearly 30,000 pounds sterling. The attack on Lawrence inflamed almost everyone, Republicans introduced bills to bring Kansas into the Union under the free state government, while Democrats introduced bills to bring in Kansas as a slave state. Neither party alone could get the votes necessary to win. To increase readership, Republican newspapers exploited the situation in Kansas. Their attack galvanized the northern states like nothing before. It went beyond passing pro-slavery laws. The sack of Lawrence was a direct act of violent aggression by slave-owning southern fire-eaters. Seven years later, in 1863, it was to be the victim of a town massacre planned and led by William C. Quantrill. Quantrill was well-educated and had followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a schoolteacher at the age of 16. In 1854, his abusive father died of tuberculosis, leaving the family with a huge financial debt. Quantrill's mother had to turn her home into a boarding house in order to survive. Quantrill helped support the family by working as a schoolteacher, but left home a year later and headed to Mendota, Illinois. Here, Quantrill took up a job in the lumber yards, unloading timber from rail cars. One night, while working the late shift, he shot a man dead. Authorities briefly arrested Quantrill, who claimed self-defense. 
since there were no eyewitnesses, and the victim was a stranger who knew no one in town. William was set free, but police strongly urged him to leave Mendota. Quantrill continued his career as a teacher, moving to Fort Wayne, Indiana, in February of 1856, and although the district was impressed with Quantrill's teaching abilities, the wages remained meager. Quantrill journeyed back home to Canal Dover that fall, with no more money in his pockets than when he had left. He later signed on as a teamster with the U.S. Army Expedition heading to Salt Lake City, Utah, in the spring. Little is known of Quantrill's journey out west, except that he excelled at the game of poker. He racked up piles of winnings by playing the game against his comrades at Fort Bridger, but flushed it all on one hand the next day, leaving him dead broke again. Quantrill then joined a group of Missouri ruffians led by Jim Lane and used his skills of riding and shooting to fight anti-slavery factions. The group helped protect Missouri farmers from the Jayhawkers for pay and slept wherever they could find lodging. The group was also known well for its crimes against anyone who had an anti-slavery opinion. Jim Lane was the leader of an unauthorized but well-financed gang of anti-slavery fanatics who became known as Jayhawkers, who supported the Free State cause, providing a resistance force against Missouri border ruffians, but went far beyond that by robbing, terrorizing, driving pro-slavery advocates from their land claims, and spreading murder and mayhem among any group of people who were seen to support slavery. After the Civil War, the word Jayhawker became synonymous with the people of Kansas. Today, a modified version of the term Jayhawk is used as a nickname for a native-born Kansan, but more typically for a student, fan, or alum of the University of Kansas. The depredations on both sides continued until the breakout of the Civil War, which gave both groups of killers a new license to kill. Following Sterling Price's secessionist Missouri State Guard victory over General Nathan Lyon's Union Army at the Battle of Wilson's Creek, Price began initiatives to clean out opposition in Kansas and retake what our brilliant Congress had formally identified as the slave state of Missouri on behalf of the pro-slave factions and the Confederacy, which was all too happy to pay Price now for his actions. Quantrill had joined Price's campaign and was getting the battlefield experience that he would use to launch guerrilla raids in the near future. James Lane, the anti-slavery leader of the Jayhawkers, organized 1,200 troops to resist the Price invasion into Kansas. Price defeated Lane in the Battle of Dry Wood Creek near Fort Scott, Kansas. Lane retreated, and Price continued his offensive further into Missouri, to the siege of Lexington. While Price moved north, Lane launched an attack behind him. After crossing the Missouri border at Trading Post, Kansas on September 10th, Lane began an offensive moving east on Butler, Harrisonville, Clinton, Missouri, and Osceola, Missouri. On September 23, 1861, at Osceola, Lane's forces drove off a small southern force and then looted and burned the town. An artillery battery under Captain Thomas Moonlight shelled the St. Clair County Courthouse. According to reports, Many of the Kansas Jayhawkers got so drunk that when it came time to leave, they were unable to march and had to ride in wagons and carriages. They carried off with them a tremendous load of plunder, including, as Lane's personal share, a piano and a quantity of silk dresses. Hundreds of slaves followed Lane to Kansas and freedom, making Lane a folk hero, despite the fact that during the raid, he executed nine local men, burned to the ground all but three of 800 buildings, and stole 350 horses and 400 cattle. 
The troops moved northwest and arrived at Kansas City, Missouri on September 29th to pursue Price as he retreated south to the state. The town of Osceola never recovered, and Lane's action left a smoldering passion for revenge that was to be repaid soon. The depredations of Lane's Jayhawkers contributed to the descent of the Missouri-Kansas border region into some of the most vicious guerrilla fighting of the Civil War. In the first year of the war, much of the movable wealth in western Missouri had been transferred to Kansas, and large swaths of western Missouri had been laid waste by an assortment of Kansas Jayhawkers, ranging from outlaws and independent military bands to rogue federal troops such as Lane's Brigade and Jennison's Jayhawkers. In February 1862, the Union Command instituted martial law due to the crime of armed depredations or jayhawking having reached a height dangerous to the peace and posterity to the entire state of Kansas and seriously compromising the Union cause in the border counties of Missouri. One expert on the jayhawker stated that the border war would have been bad enough given the fighting between secessionist and unionist Missourians, but it was basically Kansas craving for revenge and Kansas craving for loot that set the tone of the war. Nowhere else, with the grim exception of the East Kentucky and East Tennessee mountains, did the Civil War degenerate so completely into a squalid, murderous slugging match as it did in Kansas and Missouri. The most infamous event in this war of raids and reprisals was Confederate leader William Quantrill's retaliatory attack on Lawrence, Kansas, known as the Lawrence Massacre. In response to Quantrill's raid, the Union Command issued Order Number 11, the forced depopulation of specified Missouri borderlands, intended to eliminate sanctuary and sustenance for pro-Confederate guerrilla fighters. It was enforced by troops from Kansas and provided an excuse for a final round of plundering, arson, and summary execution perpetrated against the civilian population of western Missouri. In the words of one observer, the Kansas-Missouri border was a disgrace, even to barbarism. As the war continued, the Jayhawker term came to be used by Confederates as a derogatory term for any troops from Kansas, but the term also had different meanings in different parts of the country. In Arkansas, the term was used by Confederate Arkansans as an epithet for any marauder, robber, or thief, regardless of Union or Confederate affiliation. In Louisiana, the term was used to describe anti-Confederate guerrillas as well as free-booting bands of draft dodgers and deserters. Over time, proud of their state's contributions to the end of slavery and the preservation of the Union, Kansans embraced the Jayhawker term. The term came to be applied to people or items related to Kansas, similar to the terms Hoosier for Indiana, Sooner for Oklahoma, Tar Heel for North Carolina, and Buckeye for Ohio. Quantrill soon deserted General Price's army and went to Blue Springs, Missouri to form his own army of loyal men who had great belief in him and the Confederate cause. By Christmas of 1861, he had ten men who would follow him full-time into his pro-Confederate guerrilla organization. These men were William Haller, George Todd, Joseph Gilchrist, Perry Hoy, John Little, James Little, Joseph Boggan, William Gregg, James A. Hendricks, and John W. Coger. Later in 1862, John Jarrett, John Brown, Cole Younger, as well as William T. Bloody Bill Anderson and the James Brothers would join Quantrill's army. The most significant event in Quantrill's guerrilla career took place on August 21, 
1863, the town of Lawrence had been seen for years as the stronghold of the anti-slavery forces in Kansas and as a base of operation for incursions into Missouri by Jayhawkers and pro-Union forces. It was also the home of James H. Lane, a senator already mentioned in our story, infamous in Missouri for his staunch anti-slavery views and also a leader of the Jayhawkers, who were masquerading as Union soldiers. Moreover, during the weeks immediately preceding the raid, Union General Thomas Ewing Jr. had ordered the detention of any civilians giving aid to Quantrill's raiders. Several female relatives of the guerrillas had been imprisoned in a makeshift jail in Kansas City, Missouri. On August 14th, the building collapsed, killing four young women and seriously injuring others. Among the casualties was Josephine Anderson, sister of one of Quantrill's key guerrilla allies, Bloody Bill Anderson. Another of Anderson's sisters, Mary, was permanently crippled in the collapse. Quantrill's men believed the collapse was deliberate, and the event fanned them into a fury. Historians have suggested that Quantrill had actually planned to raid Lawrence in advance of the building's collapse in retaliation for earlier Jayhawker attacks as well as the burning of Osceola, Missouri. Quantrill had seen what Lane and his Jayhawkers had done to Osceola, but instead of exacting justice upon Lane, who would end up escaping this Lawrence raid, he massacred the innocent citizens of a town. In the weeks prior to the attack on Lawrence, Quantrill gathered all the intelligence he could on the disposition of the town, the location of its buildings, and any possible defense it could offer against an attack. Keep in mind, Lawrence was a town, not a fort. He used information provided by pro-slavery assets in the town who were in communication with his group, providing him with maps, names, and lists of people, businesses, churches, and homes. They were either to be raised or spared. Quantrill had been able to gain the confidence of many of the leaders of independent bushwhacker groups and chose the day and time of the attack well in advance. The different groups of Missouri riders approached Lawrence from the east in several independent columns and converged with well-timed precision in the final miles before Lawrence during the pre-dawn hours of the chosen day. Many of the men had been riding for over 24 hours to make the rendezvous and had lashed themselves to their saddles to keep riding if they fell asleep. Almost all were armed with multiple six-shot revolvers. Between three and 400 riders arrived at the summit of Mount Oread, just above Lawrence, then descended on the town in a fury at dawn. For over four hours, the raiders pillaged and set fire to the town and killed most of its male population. Quantrill's men burned to the ground a quarter of the buildings in Lawrence, including all but two businesses. They looted most of the banks and stores and killed between 185 and 200 men and boys. According to an 1897 account, among the dead were 18 of 23 unmustered army recruits. By 9 a.m., the raiders were on their way out of town, evading the few units that came in pursuit and splitting up so as to avoid Union pursuit of a unified column. The raid was less a battle than a mass execution. Two weeks prior to the raid, a Lawrence newspaper had boasted, Lawrence has ready for any emergency over 500 fighting men, everyone who would like to see Quantrill's raiders. However, a squad of soldiers temporarily stationed in Lawrence had returned to Fort Leavenworth, and due to the surprise, swiftness, and fury of the initial assault, the local militia was unable to assemble and mount a defense. Most of the victims of the raid were unarmed when gunned down. With revenge a principal motive, Quantrill's raiders had entered Lawrence with lists of men to be killed and buildings to be burned. Senator James H. Lane was at the top of the list, thanks to his sack of Osceola two years previous. 
Lane escaped death by racing through a cornfield in his nightshirt. John Spear had been put into the newspaper business by Lane, was one of Lane's chief political backers, and was also on the list. Spear likewise escaped execution, but two of his sons were killed in the raid. One of Spear's sons may have been the same John L. Spear that appeared on a list of reg legs previously issued by the Union military. Spear's youngest son, 15-year-old Billy, may have been included on the death list, but he was released by Quantrill's men after giving them a false name. The Spear boy later shot one of the raiders during their exit from Lawrence, causing one of the few casualties among Quantrill's command while in Lawrence. Charles L. Robinson, first governor of Kansas and a prominent abolitionist, may also have been on the list, though he maintained he was spared because Quantrill respected his efforts to keep peace on the border at the start of the war. One of the first casualties was Reverend Snyder, shot as he was milking his cow outside his home along present-day East 19th Street. Mayor George Collimore, upon hearing the commotion, hid in his family's well where he died of smoke inhalation. The rest of his family survived, although they had lost their home and the raiders severely wounded his 18-year-old son. George Ellis, a free black man, had risen early to finish some work on his family's farm. The raiders killed George's father, but George, his brother Ben, and his mother Jane managed to survive. George hid in a dense thicket near the Kansas River, and after Quantrill's men set the house afire, Jane successfully dragged Ben out of the flames and concealed him underneath the feather bed. In addition to targeting African Americans, the raiders also inquired about the whereabouts of notorious free state leaders like James Lane, who had hidden in the cornfield to escape detection, along with several of his neighbors. The state governor and a leader of the free state movement, Charles Robinson, was also lucky enough to escape with his life. Hugh Dunfisher, a chaplain with the 5th Kansas Cavalry, who was home on sick leave, attempted to flee with two of his sons, but being unable to keep up with them, he returned to his house and hid underneath the cellar stairs. When some of Quantrill's men entered the house, they demanded that his wife Elizabeth let them inspect the cellar. They failed to see Fisher in the dim light, but as they left, they torched the house and watched it burn, hoping to flush him out if he were hiding. Elizabeth fought valiantly to extinguish the flames, but being unable to do so, she drug out a large rug on the pretense of saving her possessions, which Hugh was hidden in. While many of the victims of the raid had been specifically targeted beforehand, executions were more indiscriminate among segments of the raiders, particularly Todd's band that operated in the western part of Lawrence. The men and boys riding with Bloody Bill Anderson also accounted for a disproportionate number of the Lawrence dead. The raid devolved into extreme brutality. The survivors reported that one man was shot while in the arms of his pleading wife, that another was killed with a toddler in his arms, that a group of men who had surrendered under assurances of safety were then gunned down, and that a pair of men were bound and forced into a burning building where they died in horrible agony. Another dramatic story was told in a letter written on September 7, 1863, by H.M. Simpson, whose entire family narrowly escaped death by hiding in a nearby cornfield as the massacre raged all around them. My father was very slow to get into the cornfield. He was so indignant at the ruffians that he was unwilling to retreat before them. My little children were in the field three hours. They seemed to know that if they cried, the noise would betray their parents' whereabouts, and so they kept as still as mice. The baby was very hungry, and I gave her an ear of raw green corn, which she ate ravenously. The youth of some of the victims is often characterized as a particularly reprehensible aspect of the raid. Bobby Martin is generally cited as being the youngest victim. Some histories of the raid state he was 12 years old, while others state he was 14. 
Most accounts state he was wearing a Union soldier uniform or clothing made from his father's uniform. Some state he was carrying a musket and cartridges. For perspective on the age of participants in the conflict, it has been estimated that about 800,000 Union soldiers were 17 years of age or younger, with about 100,000 of those being 15 or younger. Most of Quantrill's guerrilla fighters were teenagers. One of the youngest was Riley Crawford, who was 13 when brought by his mother to Quantrill after her husband was shot and her home burned by Union soldiers. In Quantrill's command, Frank James and his brother Jesse, along with R.G. Clement, did most of the killing. As the day went on, terror spread throughout the town, with panicked citizens fleeing into nearby ravines, hiding in cellars or cornfields, and attempting to escape across the Kansas River. By nightfall, the raiders were gone, but traumatized residents now faced the daunting task of cleaning up between $1 million and $1.5 million worth of damage in 1863 dollars, and coping with the high death toll. Approximately 20% of the male population had been killed, leaving 85 widows. The Lawrence Massacre was one of the bloodiest events in the history of Kansas. The Plymouth Congregational Church in Lawrence survived the attack, but a number of its members were killed and records destroyed. A day after the attack, the surviving citizens of Lawrence lynched a member of Quantrill's raiders caught in the town. On August 25th, General Ewing authorized General Order Number 11, not to be confused with Grant's famous general order of the same name, evicting thousands of Missourians in four counties from their homes near the Kansas border. Virtually everything in these counties was then systematically burned to the ground. The action was carried out by the infamous Jayhawker, Charles Doc Jennison. Jennison's raids into Missouri were thorough and indiscriminate and left five counties in western Missouri wasted, save for the standing brick chimneys of the two-story period houses, which are still called Jennison's Monuments in those parts. A Missouri abolitionist and preacher described the role of the Lawrence Massacre in the region's descent into the horror of total war on the civilian population of Kansas and Missouri. Quote, Viewed in any light, the Lawrence Raid will continue to be held as the most infamous event of the uncivil war. The work of destruction did not stop in Kansas. The cowardly criminality of this spiteful reciprocity lay in the fact that each party knew but did not care that the consequences of their violent acts would fall most heavily upon their own helpless friends. Jennison, in 1861, rushed into Missouri when there was no one to resist and robbed and killed and sneaked away with his spoils and left the Union people of Missouri to bear the vengeance of his crimes. Quantrill, in 1863, rushed into Lawrence, Kansas, when there was no danger and killed and robbed and sneaked off with his spoils, leaving helpless women and children of his own side to bear the dreadful vengeance invoked by that raid. So the Lawrence raid was followed by swift and cruel retribution, falling, as usual in this border warfare, upon the innocent and the helpless, rather than the guilty ones. Quantrill left Kansas with the loss of one man. The Kansas troops followed him at a respectful distance and visited dire vengeance on all western Missouri. Unarmed old men and boys were accused and shot down, and homes with their now meager comforts were burned, and helpless women and children turned out with no provision for the approaching winter. The number of those killed was never reported, as they were scattered all over western Missouri. The city seal of Lawrence today commemorates Quantrill's attack with its depiction of a phoenix rising from the ashes of the burnt city. 
for his part, Quantrill led his men south to Texas for the winter. By the next year, the Raiders had disintegrated as a unified force, so were unable to achieve similar feats. While in Texas, Quantrill and his 400 men quarreled. His once large band broke up into several smaller guerrilla companies. One was led by his lieutenant, Bloody Bill Anderson. Quantrill joined them briefly in the fall of 1864 during fighting north of the Missouri River. In the spring of 1865, now leading only a few dozen men, Quantrill staged a series of raids in western Kentucky. Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant on April 9th of that year, and General Johnston surrendered most of the rest of the Confederate Army to General Sherman on April 26th. On May 10th, Quantrill and his band were caught in a Union ambush at Wakefield Farm. Unable to escape on account of a skittish horse, he was shot in the back and paralyzed from the chest down. He was brought by wagon to Louisville, Kentucky, and taken to the Military Prison Hospital, located on the north side of Broadway at 10th Street. He died from his wounds on June 6, 1865, at the age of 27. Quantrill was buried in an unmarked grave in what later became known as St. John's Cemetery in Louisville. A boyhood friend of Quantrill's, newspaper reporter William W. Scott, claimed to have dug up the Louisville grave in 1887 and brought Quantrill's remains back to Dover at the request of Quantrill's mother. These remains were supposedly buried in Dover in 1889, However, Scott attempted unsuccessfully to sell what he said were Quantrill's bones, so it isn't known whether the remains he returned to Dover or buried in Dover were genuine. In the early 1990s, the Missouri Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans convinced the Kansas State Historical Society to negotiate with authorities in Dover, which led to three arm bones, two leg bones, and some hair, all allegedly Quantrill's being buried in 1992 at the old Confederate Veterans Home Cemetery in Higginsville, Missouri. As a result of these events, there are grave markers for Quantrill in Louisville, Dover, and Higginsville. Another cold-blooded killer that rose to fame during his days with Quantrill was Bloody Bill Anderson. In late 1863, while Quantrill's raiders spent the winter in Texas, animosity developed between Anderson and Quantrill. Anderson perhaps falsely implicated Quantrill in a murder, leading to the latter's arrest by Confederate authorities. Anderson subsequently returned to Missouri as the leader of a group of raiders and became the most feared guerrilla in the state, killing and robbing dozens of Union soldiers and civilian sympathizers throughout central Missouri. Although Union supporters viewed him as incorrigibly evil, Confederate sympathizers in Missouri saw his actions as justified, possibly owing to their mistreatment by Union forces. In September of 1864, he led a raid on Centralia, Missouri. Unexpectedly, they were able to capture a passenger train, the first time Confederate guerrillas had done so. In what became known as the Centralia Massacre, possibly the war's deadliest and most brutal guerrilla action, his men executed 24 Union soldiers on the train and set an ambush later that day that killed more than 100 Union militiamen. A month later, Anderson was killed in battle. Frank and Jesse James continued to spread murder and mayhem long after the Civil War. Jesse was shot from behind by Bob Ford on April 3, 1882, and killed. Frank James luckily survived a blotched robbery in Northfield, Minnesota, that killed a number of the James Younger gang attempting a bank robbery there, and later surrendered to the governor of Kentucky, but was found not guilty and escaped a long prison sentence. Frank James and Cole Younger joined a Wild West show, and died of natural causes, Frank in 1915 and Cole in 1916. 
We are very excited that the people at Audible.com are fans of our show. What was it that Bogey said to his piano player friend Sam in the movie Casablanca? Out of all the millions of podcasts out there that could have chosen to support, they pick ours. Thanks, Audible. Here are a few recommendations for you. After you go to audible.com slash 1001 to sign up for a free book, check out these books. First, Unbroken by Laura Hillebrand. Second, The Wright Brothers, W-R-I-G-H-T. Another new one from David McCullough. And third, one of my top picks, the Longmire series by author Craig Johnson, Death Without Company. It's a great story. Longmire is now in its fourth season on TV. It's about an old school sheriff in Absaroka County, Wyoming. Doesn't even own a cell phone. Need I say more? Audible.com slash 1001heroes. Go there. Sign up. Enjoy your drives more. Support our show. Thanks. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. For those of you who use iTunes Podcast, please take a few minutes to give us a review. This really helps us out in the ratings. You can catch us at iTunes Podcast and all podcatcher apps or at Facebook.com slash 1001 Heroes. And all our episodes are available at 1001storiespodcast.com. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. 